I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome to the snack episode. <laughs> Today, we're going to focus on conservative therapy and hospice care. Um, now, this is a technically a continuation of a case we presented last week. Listening to that episode is a good idea, but not 100% required for listening to this episode. Mm-hmm. JJ, will you give us an update on where we left off with Daisy's case last week? Sure. So last week, our patient Daisy had been diagnosed with pleural effusion, but the underlying cause is still unknown. And the patient had undergone three separate thoracocentesis procedures in a period of about eight days, and an increasing amount of fluid was withdrawn each time. The owners had declined for their diagnostic testing and requested conservative therapy for the patient. So the veterinarian in this case rightly expects this disease to progress and expects it to progress to a point where the patient's going to die without significant intervention. I mean, that's accurate. So. Even with significant intervention, though, the prognosis might remain poor depending on the underlying cause. Like we talked about last episode for pleural effusion, there are not really any great causes of that. There are just like less bad, medium bad, and terrible bad, (laughs) you know, causes. So the various shades of being fucked. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's not funny, but you know, (laughs) you know what I mean? Okay. We have a dark humor here. So the problem is, you know, what are you going to do for conservative management for a case like this? So, oh, you know, there are not really any conservative management options that the veterinarian expects will result in prolonged stabilization of the patient. So the veterinarian must therefore discuss veterinary hospice with the owner's And then that's going to prompt a discussion about the ethics surrounding this case, which I would like for us to talk about in this episode. So before we get into what hospice care is and those sorts of things, let's talk about kind of a theme that we mentioned towards the end of last week's episode, but didn't have a chance to expand upon. And that is the tendency of pet owners to imagine that there is some sort of a crystal ball that we can look into and determine exactly when a pet is not going to be doing well anymore or how long the pet is going to last or how long before the patient is, quote, in pain, okay, which I want to talk about definitely in this episode. And then also this idea that there must be some sort of magic wand that we can that we can use to fix the patient. So this idea of, I want my patient back to normal, but I'm not on board for doing any of the things that we have to do to to potentially reach that point. This is one of the most frustrating things that I encounter in veterinary medicine. Yeah, we need to let them know Stevie Nicks is not a veterinarian. (laughs) If only. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so this is a This is sort of a mentality that I encounter a lot, and I don't know if it's like a denial thing. Certainly, I think denial plays at least some role where they're like, you know, I have a middle-aged dog that up until, like in Daisy's case, eight days ago, I felt like was completely normal. Now you're telling me that it's got some really terrible problem that's going to cost thousands of dollars to fix. 
I don't believe you, you know, or like there must be some secret other way to handle the situation. And that's really frustrating to deal with. Mm -hmm. A really common sentiment that owners express to me is I don't want to pursue further testing because I don't want the pet to have to endure tests. I don't I don't want to put them through that. But without realizing that they're putting the pet through quite a lot by having them continue with fluid in the chest that's restricting their ability to breathe. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. it's like, for some reason, owners seem to be more comfortable letting the pet persist, even though they can't breathe well, than they would be comfortable doing some tests that aren't even really terribly invasive. It's just very, it's a very interesting rationale. Yeah, you don't know if, are they expecting them to just like, okay, well, I'm going to take them home and they're going to just go to sleep peacefully and pass away in their sleep and everything is going to be all fine. Yeah. Because that's not going to be the case. Unfortunately, JJ, I do think sometimes they feel like that's the situation. People talk about a natural death a lot. Like, I want them to die naturally, you know, and peaceful. And I'm thinking like, well, those two things don't go together. (laughs) Yeah, that's a... Oh, what are you talking about? When people make those statements, then I know that they've never actually been with mm-hmm. a family member, an animal through that transition who hasn't been helped. You know, mm-hmm. like they're dying naturally. Mm-mm, it's not, you know, like maybe rarely someone might just go to sleep and die in their sleep and that be the end of it. But most for most people, dying is like a a difficult journey to travel. Mm-hmm. It's it's, it's not pretty. It's not no. fun to look at. It's not fun mm-hmm. to listen to. No. It's, you know, and usually the one that's, well, I don't know, I guess after a certain point, then the patient is not necessarily aware anymore. But to get from the point of where they are today to that point, they have to endure some uncomfortable situations. But mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't think people are ready to know what they have to witness when a loved one or a a pet is in that end stage. It's not, if you can, you know, save them and yourself from that, it's definitely better. Yeah. Although, I mean, I guess I feel a little bit of mixed feelings about that because I think that in modern times, we've been so removed from the process of dying that now almost no one understands what it's like or really even knows how to deal with it. It's so I don't think that that part has been helpful, you know, like I Mm -hmm. I definitely don't want people to experience prolonged and unnecessary grief. But I think that understanding death, coping with it, understanding its inevitability, a hundred percent of us are going to die. All of us. We are. And the amount of control you have over when and how that happens is less than you would like to think. So I think people hear me say that and they get really upset sometimes you know but you know i mean i i hate that that's upsetting but i think that if if people could come to find that maybe even reassuring in a way then it would probably be more helpful it it's tough so unfortunately for daisy there's no crystal ball that we have that's going to tell us how long she's going to quote last and no magic wand that we can wave to make her feel better without 
you know, really understanding what's happening. Um, mm-hmm. But the owners are against humane euthanasia at this point, and they're against further major care at this point. And those are their decisions to make. So the veterinarian is sort of left with a middle ground, trying to come up with some sort of plan that's not unreasonable to try to help the patient and to coach these owners through this sort of mental transition that needs to take place when you are dealing with a hospice care patient. So let's talk about hospice care. And then we'll come back to Daisy's case and talk about whether her case is appropriate for hospice care. Okay. Uh, So let's start by discussing what exactly hospice is. For this, I'd like for us to look at the etymology of the word hospice. If I can reference this podcast, Will Kill You, which is one of my most favorite podcasts, they always look into the etymology or like the origin of the the words used to describe diseases. Uh, So we'll do this for hospice. So the archaic definition of hospice is a rest house for travelers. The term was especially used to refer to refuges or shelters kept by monks in passage from the Alps. And so if you look at the old definition of hospice, there's a lot of symbolism at play in the way that we use it now. But I love this idea that when we're providing hospice, we're providing a rest on a long journey. Because that truly is what it is. Mm -hmm. It is. So the goal of hospice care is the relief of suffering. In hospice care, we aim to reduce pain and bothersome symptoms in patients without conducting further invasive care. So hospice is not about prolonging suffering or delaying euthanasia. It's also not about the patient having a natural death. Yeah. We talked a bit earlier about how people seem to think dying naturally is some sort of a peaceful process, but it... I mean, it often is not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, in hospice, we aim to reduce symptoms in a way that is not difficult for the patient. Uh, in some ways, this will depend on what the individual patient will tolerate. Uh, some patients easily take oral medications. Some patients may not. So some patients may not mind subcutaneous injections. Also, the pet's tolerance of these things may decrease over time. You know, when, when I was dealing with small fries hospice care, I definitely found that what she what she would tolerate and what I found acceptable for her to tolerate changed dramatically over time. She was always a cat that would super hate you if you gave her oral medicine. I mean, that was her whole life, you know. Mm-hmm. She really super hated that. But if you needed to give her an injection or something like that, she didn't care as much. And if we needed to do subcutaneous fluid therapy or something like that, eh, she didn't really care. But In the last months of her life, I tried to give her subcutaneous fluids and she freaked out. And Mm -hmm. so I was like, never again. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So in that, that was because like I knew medically sure subcutaneous fluids would have been, quote, the right decision. But I have a 20 year old cat, you know, who's got multiple problems that I know are going to ultimately end her life. Is it right to continue to give her subcutaneous fluids if she finds it distasteful? No, it's Mm -hmm. not. So at that point, I discontinued her subcutaneous fluids. And then intellectually, I knew we're one step closer to the transition for her. You know, Mm -hmm. it can be really hard, though, I think, for 
for pet owners who are not, who don't have the medical background side and who are less used to dealing with the sort of the mental transition that's required to go from testing and diagnosis into supportive care and euthanasia when the pet can no longer be supportive. I think it's hard for them sometimes to bridge that gap. Yeah, especially if it's been something that's been gone going, you have the those those uh, clients that are really really heavily involved in the patient care. You know, mm-hmm. they're up there up at night making sure that they're getting what they need, and then all of a sudden it's like it's time to not do as much and just kind of let things progress a little bit and have them step away a little bit. That's really hard to do, especially for those that are like the 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 caretakers that's like I want to do all the things and you're like oh but does your pet want you to do all the things yeah so JJ when we're thinking about hospice care what sorts of of treatment should we consider providing for for patients in hospice the general categories of things we should consider providing include pain control nausea control appetite stimulation possibly steroids Yeah, I mean, I think that's a pretty comprehensive list. So any medications that we can use to help the patient be more comfortable? Nausea is an uncomfortable feeling, even though it's not truly pain, but like it sucks to be nauseated. So Mm -hmm. I think providing serenia, you know, other antiemetics is a great plan. There are a ton more appetite stimulants on the market now than there used to be when I first graduated. So, I mean, I think, man, appetite stimulant, that sounds like a great plan. You know, there's even the mirtazapine transdermal for cats. You just put it on their ear pinna, you know, like I think not all cats will accept oral medicine, but mm-hmm. like putting something on your ear pinna is like pretty non-invasive, you know. Yeah. So, um, and I've had some um, hospice patients make a turnaround and go back to eating with that. And, you know, that's not like traumatic for them. So I think mm-hmm. that's reasonable. You mentioned steroids. I feel like I use steroids judiciously in most practice, but I do not hesitate to use steroids in an end-of-life patient. Mm-hmm. I think that the steroid pendulum swings back and forth and that when I was in veterinary school, it might have been during the time where the steroid pendulum had swung firmly toward like, <laughs> don't ever give them, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> Since I've gotten out of veterinary school and spent a lot of time in practice, I've found that, you know, I use steroids more than the people who trained me would prefer. But I try to always make sure that we don't have any other course of action first. In Daisy's case, I mean, I would try steroids on that dog. What if it's got a mass that we just didn't see on x-ray? You know, mm-hmm. like uh, steroids can decrease inflammation around that mass. If one is there, it can also give the patients a feeling of euphoria. Mm-hmm. And then, like, what's the downside if it doesn't work? I mean, nothing. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, like, what What could that possibly make worse? I'm trying to think. Like, hard to say, I think. Yeah. Unless they have I, some sort of reaction to it, but then you just stop it. But, right. I, mean, I, yeah. So, I mean, the reason that you wouldn't start steroids right away in a patient like Daisy is because... If the owner wants to try to find the underlying cause, steroids could mask it, right? But they've mm-hmm. been pretty adamant that they don't want to do anything else. Okay, let's try some steroids. It might not work, but maybe the patient feels a little better for a little time. You know, I, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's reasonable. I think it's reasonable. 
So I'm in a place. Right. (laughs) In hospice care, um, I think looking at the individual patient and what you can provide for them and then what the owners will allow will give you the formula of what to do for that patient. So, for example, I might have a dog like Daisy and feel like maybe she needs some pain control, but it might cause respiratory depression. I need to warn the owners about that, but also don't want her to be uncomfortable. She doesn't seem nauseated, so we'll probably skip that. She's got, uh, it seems like a good appetite. They haven't mentioned that yet, so probably don't need that. Would I give steroids? Maybe, you know, like, and I might even go back and revisit the furosemide that the veterinarian in Daisy's case talked about with the owners. Again, because like at this point, what's the harm? You know, like, eh, is it going to help? I have no idea. Probably not. Mm -hmm. But like, what if it did? Okay, like we can try it, you know. In a cat patient who hated to be medicated, I might not do those things because if is the stress of medicating the cat going to outpace the potential effects of the medicine? So I think that the stress level for the patient needs to be at the forefront of our minds whenever mm-hmm. we're considering hospice care. Now, you're going to notice on this list of things JJ just went over, none of these things involve serial testing. None of them involve, you know, pulling fluid off the chest. None of them involve like invasive type procedures. So we're going to come back to that idea in just a minute. Anytime we're dealing with quality of life, having some sort of objective way to evaluate the quality of life is important. And the two things that I like to use are quality of life scales and what I call the three favorite things test. So quality of life scales Uh, and these are widely available on the internet, there are a few different types. This is going to have the owner rank the pet and give them a score. Usually it's from one to 10 on a number of categories. Usually it's seven categories. And then at the end, we're going to add that score up and see if it's acceptable or unacceptable. Most quality of life scales have a total of about 70 and they say anything less than 35, which is like 50% is unacceptable. But I like to add two qualifiers onto that. I like to say, even if we're not below 35, but we are consistently demonstrating a downward trajectory in scores, that's an indication that we need to consider euthanasia. And if we have gigantic drops, so gigantic drops like 10 plus points with the same person scoring. So say we jump from 50 down to 40 all of a sudden, I think that's grounds to consider humane euthanasia, even though technically we're not below 35, because there are some clients that are like, they very robustly score their dog that's not doing well, you know? Mm-hmm. So it would take a very lot for them to score something a two. Like they, my two might be their seven, you know, on the mm-hmm. scale. So I think using that, that type of uh, thing can make up for that discrepancy. And then the three favorite things test I did not invent this. This is definitely something that I got from other veterinarians over the years, but I have absolutely no idea who I picked this up from. So the three favorite things test involves the owner telling you what are the pet's three favorite things historically. Now, this doesn't mean right now when they're sick. This means like over time. So I'll use small fry as an example. Small fry's three favorite things are eating, sleeping in the window, and playing. Okay? playing with toys. So if the patient is still doing at least two out of the three things, then their quality of life is good. 
if we drop to a one out of three, that can only persist for a couple of days before it's time to consider euthanasia. So for small fry, if we're still sleeping in the window, but we're not eating well and we're not playing with toys and that persists for more than two to three days, then it's time. Okay, just as an example. And um, I think that use of the quality of life scale and the three favorite things tests really helps the owner put an objective value on how the pet's doing. Um, and sometimes it even helps them beca- like in, in mentally and emotionally say like, well, I don't want to euthanize the patient, but when I'm taking the test, it's telling me that I need to. So mm-hmm. I want to do the right thing. Uh, sometimes it's easier for them to have an inanimate piece of paper tell them that it's time than it is for them to say, I decided it's time. Mm-hmm. So going to a regular veterinary hospital for hospice care might be a bit hit or miss. The reason is that it can be difficult even for veterinarians and staff to move out of the diagnose and treat mindset and into the supportive care mindset. Also, hospice appointments sort of take up a lot of time, and the regular veterinary hospital might not be equipped for those type of time issues. So for that reason, finding a veterinarian that specializes in hospice care might be a good idea. So, JJ, Mm -hmm. going back to the case with Daisy. I have some personal concerns about providing hospice care for this patient. The patient has not remained stable without serial thoracocentesis. So my question is, is it right to continue to perform thoracocentesis on the patient when we know that it won't cure them? Yeah, because it is, it's an invasive procedure. I mean, I can kind of see why the owners like want to do it repeatedly because it clearly has made her feel better. Yeah. and. I mean, as she continues in hospice, getting into respiratory distress, I mean, that's something that, you know, I can see them coming back in kind of similarly that they did before when she was not doing well um, after it had been several days. And they're like wanting that thoracocentesis. But at some point you have to stop doing those. Um, and when you get the dog in and that level of respiratory distress, um, euthanasias are not always super chill Mm -hmm. just because they're, I don't know, when any dog or cat is in respiratory stress, trying to get, you know, if you need to place an IV catheter or trying to give them an injection, I mean, they're just fighting to breathe. And if they also add the fact that you're doing something that they don't necessarily they might be able to tolerate it in a normal circumstance, but if they're trying with everything they can just to breathe, uh, it's going to exasperate the thing, the issues. So it's going to be, that's going to be a, a doozy. Yeah. And, and if you've had the patient come in repeatedly for thoracocentesis and the patient finds that uncomfortable, then when we ultimately present for euthanasia, the patient might be like, you know, anxious and afraid that they're going to have another thoracocentesis performed. Mm -hmm. You know, in this case, in this case, they're saying, you know, that Daisy tolerates thoracocentesis like pretty well. So I think in some ways it does depend on the patient's individual tolerance level, but thoracocentesis is not a pain-free procedure. You know, it's, it's not. I have had clients before with patients with pleural effusion sort of do this same thing to me 
and kind of like kind of <laughs> I mean dick around you know kind of like mm-hmm. they kind of like hesitate to make any sort of firm decision one way or the other they maybe say like we don't want to do anything else we just want conservative care but then the patient's not doing good so they rush them in and they're like what can we do to help and I'm like all the things I've been mentioning to you for days to weeks you know like those yeah. are the things you told me you didn't want to do the things so euthanasia and then they're like what we don't want to do that and it's like okay so we can't live in this limbo situation yeah, in fact these, early go ahead these are the patients that often pass away on the way to the clinic as they're bringing them in an emergency situation or they get them to the clinic and then we're like you got to make a decision now because mm-hmm. things are going south in a hurry and it's the pet's going to pass without the benefit of euthanasia Yep. Soon, if we don't get this show on the road, and it's it's way more traumatic, I feel. Definitely. I mean, and, and this is a little off topic, but I think along the same lines, this is exactly what happens in human patients who are like, look at my face. I don't want to be intubated. Do you understand what I'm saying? They've mm-hmm. got all the paperwork to back it up. You know, all the yada yada is filed with the DNRs filed with the hospital. All that stuff's happening. Then the actual emergency happens and the family members freak out and call the ambulance, you know, Mm -hmm. and then now the now the patient is intubated. They've got a a terrible prognosis still, but their wishes have not been Mm -hmm. yielded to. And it's because people tend to get panicky, right? Like they're like, oh, my God, you know, like I'm not ready. And so then so then they end up making a choice that's not in the best interest of the patient. So I think that's analogous here, you know, mm-hmm. when the patient is stable, they're able to think clearly and say like, no, I, I really don't want to do X, Y, and Z. I don't think that's right. But then they've made that decision. Then the patient starts to get very sick and then they kind of get panicky and are like, I want to do everything, you know, or I, I want to do everything we can right now, even though it's not fair to do that. Mm-hmm. And I experienced a little bit of that when when small fry died because when i came home and found her she was in respiratory distress and i had known for a while like probably months that you know look we're not doing anything further you know i know i could i know i could do all of these things but i'm drawing the line she's tired she doesn't she doesn't want to do it but it was very difficult for even me as a veterinarian to say like it's time i mean it it was hard Mm-hmm. hard so i i definitely understand how it's very difficult for people who don't have that same medical background to look at their animals in an objective way and say this is the decision that i've made and it's time you know mm-hmm. yeah very hard so with daisy's case i would draw the line here for further thoracocentesis and i would go ahead and be sure to have that conversation with the owners right away, which is like, okay, she came in in distress and you asked for us to do this and I did and she's back stable again, but I need you to hear me, okay? You guys have decided conservative therapy. That means hospice care in this situation. Repeated thoracocentesis is not appropriate for hospice care. It's only appropriate if we're trying to cure the patient. If we're not trying to cure the patient, it becomes unfair because she can't consent to this. You know, Mm -hmm. so I, you know, I just 
I just need to warn you ahead of time that this is the last time we're going to do this procedure. Now, that might change if you ultimately decide that you do want to try to work the case up, because then we'd be operating on the assumption that we have a chance, potentially, not a great chance, but still a chance to get her comfortable long term. But without any further diagnostics and treatment, there's then zero chance of her being comfortable long term. And we expect this to have to continue. So that's inappropriate. And I've had to give that speech to owners a few times. Most seem to understand and take it well. Unfortunately, I've had one or two over the years get extremely angry when I tell them, you know, I'm not going to perform any further thoracocentesis for this patient because it's inappropriate because you've chosen hospice care and here's why. But at the end of the day, as a veterinarian, you just have to do what you feel comfortable with. And I think for me, it's unethical to continue to to tap to tap the chest in a patient that um, that we're not pursuing a diagnosis for. Mm-hmm. For me, that JJ, totally, what I mean, what do you think? I would definitely feel the same way. I mean, I'm not going to be the one providing that, or, or you know, I'm not the doctor in the situation, but I I would definitely try to like you know look me in the eyeballs this is this is it and i don't know sometimes i get accused of being kind of scare tactic heavy but i would also be like you know this is the things to expect when things progress you saw how things were when you brought back for that recheck and you were desperate for that thoracocentesis well that's going to even increase to a a, a level that it's not going to be pleasant to see so, I don't know. I mean, personally, I would even be like, hey, we did it today. This is going to happen again. Do you want to, while the pet is not fighting to breathe, do you want to pursue euthanasia? Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, yeah, another poke, but I don't know. I just always kind of feel like I would rather things end too, not too soon, but end sooner rather than too late. And I don't know, it's just, I've just seen too many of those respiratory distress, end of life pets. And it's, it's just, you know, it's not pretty. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it comes back to the idea of providing feudal care. Mm -hmm. Feudal, like F-U-T-I-L-E, meaning like it doesn't matter. You know, Mm -hmm. like it's providing this care is feudal. It's not going to make a difference. So feudal care has been defined as any clinical circumstance in which physicians and their consultants conclude that further treatment other than comfort care cannot, within a reasonable possibility, cure, ameliorate, improve, or restore quality of life that will be satisfactory to the patient. And for me, repeated thoracocentesis falls into the category of feudal care. Mm-hmm. in this situation where the owners are not trying to identify an underlying cause that could be addressed. It's futile in this case because we know it's going to continue and that we have a history of it being progressive. So every time this dog's chest has been tapped, more and more fluid is accumulating. You know, this one is not going to end good. Mm-mm. It's going to be frustrating. So, so I guess I'll 
to kind of round out this episode, I know that Daisy's case is a difficult case to sort of use to present the idea of hospice care because Daisy's case doesn't align very well with hospice care. In other cases, might. Mm-hmm. I think some some examples of hospice care that we provide in veterinary medicine where the, the pet's illness falls right in line with hospice care would be advanced kidney patients, particularly kitty cats, mm-hmm. uh, who can live for years with a good quality of life with pretty, like, you know, minimally invasive, you know, interaction. Mm-hmm. I think that patients with neoplastic diseases, so cancer, mm-hmm. many of them can have their symptoms managed for a time without major intervention. There are also some other diseases that are really are not a good idea for hospice care. And the one that comes to mind uh, right away for me is diabetes mellitus. Mm-hmm. You know, I, a lot of people are like, well, now what if I just don't do anything? I don't give them any insulin and I just see what they do. And I'm like, okay, well, I can tell you what's going to happen is they're going to die shittily <laughs> in a real bad situation. And that's not cool. You know, that's not no. what one of the options is. Right. Mm-hmm. So I feel like we've pre- we've presented hospice care maybe in a little bit of a negative light just because of the case that we had that it sort of came up in naturally. But I actually find that hospice care is a very hopeful type of care to provide. It can be very rewarding. Mm -hmm. It's difficult emotionally, absolutely, and it requires a lot of time and patience. And you have to really do some hand-holding with owners and things like that. But it can be super rewarding emotionally to help those patients make a comfortable and dignified transition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Just a reminder that the Alabama Veterinary Technician Association Fall CE meeting is going to be October the 23rd, and it is going to be a virtual meeting. I'm one of the presenters, and I hope to see you there. Okay, well, if you have stories, questions, cases, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send them to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media. Uh, We're on Facebook and Instagram, and it's at Introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. Yes, please. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.